0: My voice is a bit raw today. We had a raucous send-off for Jane Cahoon last night over at the Market Garden Brewery. It was great to see all of our colleagues here at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. It's this week at the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Layla Atassi and Laura Johnston, who were pikers. They left before I did.
1: I- <laughs> The the, the the clock was ticking on my babysitter, man. That's ching ching. I had to pick up my
2: kid from hockey.
1: <laughs> well, Leila right, well. and I
2: got into a debate about Frozen too, and I think that all the other reporters <laughs> was sort of threw like up like their hands the were like, right, reporters were, were like, uh, yeah."
1: <laughs> Courtney Astolfi was literally like, "I think I need another drink for this."
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you you forget how much the pandemic is taken away from everybody. And we have a, a really good culture in the newsroom. It's the one place I've worked where nobody really gets tries to get ahead by knocking somebody else down. Everybody works in support of each other. It's been a
1: it's been a really it was lovely
0: time.
2: So good to see everybody and oh, be able man. to like rib everybody in person. Like you know, it's one thing if you're having conversations about stories on the phone, and there's you know always the pressure, but to see people in person and talk it out, like you can't have hard feelings when you're like, you know, talking over a beer and you're just glad to see each other. Yeah.
0: The fellowship in the room, it, it, it just, it was, it was great. And we know we'll get back to it eventually, but I imagine every workplace is going through most workplaces are going through the same pain and it's just part of what this pandemic has done. It's been a remarkable and change in culture.
2: What a send off to Jane. I mean, hats off mm. to her. She had her whole crew from Columbus and DC there. So we miss you already, Jane.
0: Yeah, and the <laughs> listeners, will, will be curious to know, how did she spend her first day? She took a nap. <laughs> yeah, she said she's.
1: <laughs> and I
2: love that the retirees were the only ones that were on time to
0: the guard. <laughs> yeah, right, because they can. All right, let's begin. Did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, House Speaker Bob Cupp, Senate President Matt Huffman, and four other top elected officials go ahead and violate the Ohio Constitution they swore to uphold on Wednesday? Laura Johnston, I'm flabbergasted by this because there are people out there that are like, yeah, no big deal. This is the Constitution. This is the thing the voters voted 70 percent to change so that we would see legislative maps in transparency. And these seven people just don't seem to care that the Constitution requires them to act.
2: Yeah, absolutely. They went ahead. They violated the Constitution. And you're right. I mean, there's a date in there for a reason. It doesn't say, hey, sometime in the fall you should maybe do this. It says there's a September 1st deadline to give the public a look at the proposed new state legislative maps. And there's five Republicans and there's two Democrats. The Republicans are blaming the U.S. Census, saying we didn't get the numbers on time, and the Democrats are blaming the Republicans. And you're right. The, there is a backstop built into this process, but September 1st was the date they were supposed to approve the new state legislative maps. If they didn't get there, They have a harder deadline of September 15th. But without that, they were still required to introduce a map to the public for consideration before September 1st.
0: Well, here's the thing, too. Dave Yost is the attorney general. He's not on this commission. Right. And they gave some mealy mouthed response saying, well, they're within the parameters of the Constitution. This is the same Dave Yost that sued the census to make sure. We got the data by the date it was needed, and he was successful in doing so. People all questioned whether he had standing. He did have standing. He sued the Democratic Biden administration to get the data because he said it was vitally important to the citizens of Ohio to be able to do the redistricting process according to the Constitution. So where the hell is he now? Instead, because these are all his Republican colleagues, he's given them a pass. He's supposed to be the defender of the Constitution. I was aghast that he stood by. Is he such a political stooge that he won't do his job here?
2: I mean, the whole process is incredibly political. I mean, we have the guy from I think he's from Cincinnati that went on Twitter saying you need to protect the Republican districts. I mean, in the voters eyes, in the perfect world, these would be nonpartisan districts that make a lot of sense. But everybody's playing politics here. They're trying to make sure that their party is protected instead of the voters.
0: Would Dave Yost have the same opinion if it were somebody violating the the Second Amendment involving weapons? Would he have the same (laughs) opinion if somebody were violating the First Amendment right to assemble and religion? I mean, it's just staggering to me that he is not enforcing. It's the Constitution. It's not some state law. It's the Constitution that 70 percent of us voted to change because we don't like them doing things in secret. I think they're going to whip these things out three days before the deadline, have three quickie hearings where they barely listen to what's said and ram it through.
2: Right, you're right. They're required to have three public hearings. And like we talked about a while ago on the podcast with their first public hearings to gather opinions, I mean, they didn't even have all the members there. So you have to wonder how much credence they're giving to the law, the constitution that the voters have approved of. And and Andrew Tobias wrote this story. He reached out to some good you know, government advocates, including the ACLU, they said that there's no specific consequences for flouting these rules, but this would give credence to a lawsuit. No one's lining up to sue right now. But uh, Frieda Levinson did say 10 years ago, they drew the map in a hotel room they designated as the bunker, and now they're doing the same thing. So that's the real fear. There's no transparency here.
0: Right, and I'm just surprised that those groups are not expressing the outrage that they these seven really it's the five are violating the Constitution that they swore an oath to support. So and, I, and yesterday
2: but, I do believe the Secretary of State set out a news release about like how he was improving voting, and I want to be like, well, you could fix the districts that would improve voting.
0: Yeah, it's uh, well, we'd be counting down the days. So it's day one of violation of the Constitution for the governor, the House Speaker. The Senate president, the auditor, the secretary of state, it's bad news. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. So how much money does the city of Cleveland say it lost because of the pandemic? And how will that affect the plans to spend all of the stimulus money it is receiving? La, La- Tassi, that number stood out to me because I had not seen it before. I'm a little bit surprised it's as big as it is, and, and I w- would love to see a breakdown.
1: Yeah, the city says it lost 110 million in revenue during the pandemic, which would leave about 401 million of its federal stimulus money available for other expenses. But so far, you know, according to our stimulus watch reporter Robin Goist, the city hasn't spent any of the money. They've been taking their time, kind of you know, talking to potential partners and identifying opportunities, and then of course gathering feedback from the community, which is required. They submitted a preliminary report to the feds earlier this week saying that much and and providing kind of a rough outline of how they would like to spend the money. So, um, yeah, so you're saying that that number stood out to you. You didn't think it would be that high?
0: Well, Not really, because they kept collecting our income taxes. So it's like, I mean, if we wouldn't have had to give them the income taxes when we weren't downtown, then then, yeah, I think it would be one hundred million dollars. But where did they lose one hundred million
1: dollars? They got all the income taxes, which is
0: 93 percent of their budget. Yeah. Ninety three percent. You know, I mean, yeah. okay. there was some there were there were lost jobs, but there's no way they lost in eighteen months, a hundred million in income taxes, and that's the bulk of their budget. So where is, where is this coming from?
1: That's a great question. I think we should do that story. Yeah. I mean, they, they said they're you. hey, but, it's my team. I think I should go assign it. Um, that's a really good. Calling, that's a good question because I forgot. I forgot that you're right. They have co- continued collecting it from all of the remote workers. That's been obviously the, you know the, um, the hot issue this past year. I mean, so I, I get
0: the feeling they're just shoving that money into their their budget instead of spending it on on programs. The, the other the other thing that they said is that they calculated it based on the rules coming from the federal mm-hmm, government. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. maybe the rules were whatever you think you lost, multiply it by five and then that <laughs> maybe
1: that's it. It could be. Yeah. And and also it made me think about, you know, this money has to be spent within a certain amount of time, but future years, we don't know how long the pandemic will go, how much more revenue will be lost, whether or not, you know, the uh, uh the city will ever have to stop collecting from remote workers. I mean, there are so many variables that I, I wonder how much is going to, of this money will have to be soaked up into that, you know, stopping the bleeding kind of approach. But, um, but you know, well, they, they, they outlined, well, Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well,
0: well, that raises a question. Is, is it possible that some of that hundred million is projected future losses that, that you're Maybe. basically projecting the money you're going to lose through 2026, because that would make more sense to me. You could probably over, four years come up with a reasonably accurate prediction although remember when the county predicted what it was going to lose right. and did all the layoffs and it turned out they were completely wrong that's so, right
1: that's right yeah we should we'll dig into that number a little bit and also into that formula to see what what the feds have have uh how they have guided municipalities to to calculate that number but among the other you know so they, they also outlined some some decent ideas uh for How to spend the money that they'll have remaining and included uh you know video surveillance and led streetlight program expansion and upgrading police records database and dispatch system into a combined system to hopefully improve response times and of course buying new equipment for medical frontline employees and uh you know city council also has introduced a number of of pieces of legislation that are pending to spend you know one of them is to spend five million on a donation of the greater cleveland food bank and then 20 million for broadband expansion so that those ideas all made it into the city's report that was filed this week and then there are a bunch of ideas for improving housing in the city and and then interestingly the city was required to gather feedback from residents on how they would like to see the money spent and they got T- over 2200 responses which i thought was was quite interesting and the greatest turnout from uh, f- among those respondents was from the most eastern and western wards of the city and uh so that was really fascinating also 20 percent of those ideas involved improving public safety in, uh, in some way so let me, um, let me channel yeah.
0: mike balancic then why aren't they spending it
1: exactly that's what council has been saying. They've had a few council meetings uh, where the administrators have been at the table for at least a couple of them. And there's so much frustration now about why is the money still just sitting in a bank account? The, t- the clock is ticking on this. And, uh, you know, I don't know if, if it's a matter of, you know, Frank, Jax- Frank Jackson wants to leave it in the hands of the next administration, doesn't want to bigfoot the process. I'm not exactly sure. But they say they're just trying to be as thoughtful as they can. So but, you yeah, know, it
0: seems odd that they haven't tried to spend it. They're all up for reelection. They want to be able to go to the residents and say, see, so right. we'll have to see. Well, I wonder if Bob Higgs is uh, picking up the vibe that we're sending out that a story is coming his way.
1: <laughs> I could you're send him a text. <laughs> <laughs> you're listening instead of a vibe
0: <laughs> in the CLE. Some 18 months after the coronavirus pandemic began, what is Ohio finally doing to handle all the calls people make to resolve their complaints about unemployment benefits? Laura Johnston, what, what's staggering about this story is that it's 18 months later they're finally doing it.
2: Right. I wonder how bit bad the uh, the calls are right now that they are now just addressing this or if they're going to end up with people sitting around just twiddling their thumbs because there's not as many calls. But this week, the unemployment benefit system got permission to spend nearly $14 million on new call center agents and contractors to po- process these pending claims. So the first one was $11.7 million contract with Conduent State and Local Solutions of Washington, D.C. They're going to provide as many as 200 new agents through April 2022, To provide people answering calls of the people applying for or receiving benefits, all those people who are super frustrated and just want to get through to a human being who can help them. Um, As of July 31st, the state had about a thousand full time contract center contact center agents 874 of those were vendor staff so very small percentage. I mean, about a fifth, I guess, are state workers. They are also going to spend $2.2 million on various vendors to examine unemployment claims and appeals in order to make sure they're not fraudulent. Obviously, they've had a huge amount of trouble with this.
0: The, The idea that people are still having wait times is kind of surprising. We knew that there was a glut of this at the beginning, but you had thought that it had abated but it sounds like no it hasn't abated and again there's the fall rush
2: right yeah this fall rush is that a lot of people leave these seasonal jobs and they need jobs so it's usually a busy season for the unemployment system and so that's what they're prepping for kind of like back to school it's it's back to unemployment
0: okay you're listening to this week in the CLE What's the argument of a Cleveland city council member to freeze the number of council seats at 17 rather than cut them to 15 as required in the city charter because of the population drop we saw in the census. Layla Tassi, actually, it sounds like he might have a good argument.
1: He, I think he might. Councilman Mike Polencic talked to our, uh, our reporter Bob Higgs about this this week. As we know, with the last latest census figures that were just released, the city's population dropped below that magic number, 375,000. And per the city charter, that means that the number of council members have to be reduced to 15 to maintain a ratio of 25,000 residents per council person. That came about as the result of a 2008 charter change that tied population to the number of council people. So the last time this happened, when council went from 19 to 17 members, the idea was that One ward would come from the east side and one from the west just to be kind of equitable about it. And to make that happen, it it took a lot of creativity, to put it mildly. I mean, there was so much rancor and bitterness. And a couple wards ended up spanning the river and encompassing multiple neighborhoods that in some cases didn't really have much in common just to kind of get 25,000 people into each ward. And so Polensik is worried that population loss was so much more dramatic on the east side than the west side, that there would be no avoiding at this time. Both wards would have to come from the east side. And that would not only create bitter political divisions during that redistricting process, but also that increasing geographic areas of wards on the east side, forcing members to cover more territory would mean less representation for those residents. Now, this is not going to go to the November ballot. The filing deadline is Friday, and there's no way to get that together in time. But it's likely we'll see more conversation about this among council members in the coming year. City Council President Kevin Kelly, who's running for mayor, seems to want to stay out of it. And I think he probably should. He's not going to be on council next year, no matter how his fortunes shake out for the mayor's race. But um, so he's kind of kicking the can down the road, I think. Um, but it, it, Palencia well, has a really good point here.
0: Well, there there are a couple of factors as you think about. I think Columbus has like 11, and it's bigger as a city. But in Cleveland, the city council person is always or almost always the first point of contact. They're not they're not, it's not like some governing board that gets together and does budgeting and then sits at home the rest of the time. They're, they're full-time jobs for the ones that do it right. There are some that are, that don't, but for most of them, I mean, Jay Westbrook used to carry a lawnmower in his trunk because somebody called about high weeds. He would actually go mow them himself. These are the people that when you have a problem in Cleveland, you call and say, Hey, the dog's barking, man. Can't you stop it? And what Polensic is bringing up, it's not just about the per capita rate, it's the square mileage rate. I mean, there is a geography argument here. It's like when people start talking about police officers per capita, you start to lose track of the fact that it doesn't matter how many people are there, there's still miles of road you've got to be patrolling. And this is, you may be getting to a point, as long as Cleveland City Council is that first point of contact, as long as they have the lawnmowers in their trunk, that you you shouldn't make it too big a geographic area. Uh, I I, I don't, I'm not sure the residents would be opposed to this. Remember, there was that effort a couple of years ago to reduce the size of council that got huge blowback because it was seen as disenfranchisement. Would that carry over to this debate?
1: Yeah, I think that's a you know that's a great point. You know, there this kind of came up during the editorial board interviews of uh, council candidates too. For instance, in, in Tony Brancatelli's ward, it is one of those that spans east and west. He lives in the Slavic village neighborhood, but his opponent lives on the other side of the river. And, um, you know, she, one of the, one of his opponents, I should say, and she was really challenging him on the point that she, you know, many residents on the west side feel that, that he, you know, that his ward is the Slavic village ward and that he hasn't paid enough attention to the needs on, on. You know the west side of of their community. and uh, so, and that was a major part of of you know their their debate during that interview. and i I can imagine that that would be the case in in I mean, we're talking about neighborhoods that have so many, I mean, just disparate neighborhoods that that have little in common in some cases. How can you meet the needs of of a greater geography of? Of your community, it's it's uh it is it's troubling. It is well,
0: well. Think about poor Joe Jones. If he ended up with a lot more geographic area, how many raccoons would he be trapping <laughs> and taking out to the woods? <laughs> how I many mean, groundhogs? Groundhogs. Yeah, so, okay, you're listening to this week in the CLE. What are army worms and why should people in Ohio be worried about them? Laura Johnston, I read this story this morning and I had a thousand questions, which I sent out to you all in my morning note because there's just, I don't understand how this came to be. So we'll get to those questions. But first, how about telling us what's going on with army worms? You know, firsthand.
2: Oh my gosh. When I saw this, I think it was Tuesday. I was like, this is such a Chris Quinn story. Like I can't believe that he hasn't been telling me about it, but these army worms, they're little caterpillars. They can destroy a lawn in a day. And I found out about it because my parents have them. They sent me a text of my my parents' house, which is an acre and a half of lawn that my dad loves mowing on his riding lawnmower, his John Deere, right? This is his thing. He likes it. And they just turned it brown overnight. This is a caterpillar that's native to the South. It's been blown in North by recent weather patterns, including Hurricane Ida. Ida. And as the moth mates, the eggs evolve, and the caterpillars that emerge chomp down the green blades of grass and causing what remains to turn brown. And these are not just patches. All of a sudden, I woke up the next... I realized that's my neighbors, the next door neighbors to me, that their grass touches mine went brown overnight and now i'm getting this creep of brown into my lawn so i frantically called like a lawn company and i was like please come save my lawn cuz the last thing i want to do is reseed it and that's what might happen it can survive this if they don't get to um the crowns in the soil but you don't really know if that's going to happen and this is the worst that these lawn services have seen in 20 years
0: all right so but but in reading the story what what it seems to say is this is a problem south of us, but mm-hmm. but because of climate change and because of storms, they've blown these caterpillars in big numbers into Ohio, and they're coming. My my thing is, I've never heard of a line of worms that destroy lawns anywhere in the country. I lived in Florida for nine years. There were all sorts of bugs there. There were chinch bugs that would kill your lawn overnight. There were uh, the, 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 the fire ants that the mounds would come up overnight, and they were really ho- horrible, but we didn't have army worms. And I've just never heard of this this skirt. So, are, is there a place in this country, south of us and north of Florida, where every year people are seeing their lawns die? I've just, is I, that...
2: I don't know the answer to that. When I talked to the lawn guy, he said it's in 15 states, um, and mostly to the south of us. Maybe it is somewhere in the middle, like Georgia or one of the Carolinas. But if this is worse than it's been in decades, maybe it's just like a an annual scourge some places, but like right now they're worse than anyone's ever seen them. And and if you go on social media, people are like, what the heck?
0: It's not an invasive species though. This is something that's common in places in America and it's just spread in a big way to us.
2: That's my understanding, because when you say army worms, like I told you, you're like, I've never heard of these. Right. And I'd never heard of these. And everybody on social media who's like, oh, is this what this is? I think this is just uh, a real jaw dropper.
1: This it's... is Leila Tassi. I just I after you sent out that note this morning, I did some Googling. It does seem that there that this is an outbreak year uh, for even the South, that they're being kind of inundated with calls at at, you know, lawn care places. To treat this problem, well, so I think it's just.
2: Have you seen it yet, Layla, When like in your neighborhood,
1: I I haven't, but I think I mean we. There's grubs. There's all kinds of things that kill lawns. So maybe it, it hasn't registered that there's some something else plaguing us. Maybe but just my haven't... daughter did mention seeing a crazy crazy caterpillar the other day and describing it. And when I saw this picture, I was like, oh, crap. <laughs> so maybe I guess this is
0: nature's <laughs> way of telling us we shouldn't have lawns because they're not good for the environment <laughs> and we should be planting other right, kinds right. of plants. I uh, The one good thing is, is they, the winter wipes them out. Right. And the only way they come back next year is if we have storms that blow them back, although climate change is bringing them. Check out Pete Cross's story. And I believe we, we've been doing a follow to answer some of these questions. Pete. Krauss is now getting the vibe. You're listening <laughs> to This Week in the CLE. The last we talked about it, the event business at the IX Center was dead. How is it possible that things like the auto show are returning? Leila Tassi, I'm, I just was stunned by this story because when the IX Center, when the Park Corporation shut it down a year ago, it surprised everybody, including the owner, the city, which leased it. But the city announced it was immediately setting off to find other uses and other revenue from that building. Right. And so this announcement surprised me because the city's really not talking to us. No. And I don't understand how the event business can return absent the city's cooperation.
1: Well, and also in the middle of a pandemic, like who wants to <laughs> I just, I've been to some of those shows, they are packed and I, I don't know. But yes, it is likely that we're going to see the auto show, boat show and all those others return. The IX Center, as you said, is owned by the City of Cleveland. And the IX Center Corporation, which is owned by Park Corporation, has operated that facility for 35 years. So back in September, you know, they announced that they were gonna close it because of the pandemic, a huge bummer for people who love those giant expos. And it wasn't clear how or if it was ever going to reopen. Well, so this week, Industrial Realty Group, one of the country's largest owners of commercial and industrial properties, announced that it's going to purchase the stock in the IX Center Corporation with an eye toward reopening these shows almost immediately. The company said it will... Immediately prepare the main hall in the IX Center for events with promoters to market trade show events such as Cleveland Auto Show, the, the great big home and guard show, the Ohio RV Super Show, Cleveland Christmas Connection, and IX piston powered autorama show. And these shows are saying that they're going to come back. The Christmas Connection is likely to be there this November. Home and Garden and the auto shows probably going to return in early 22. Uh, 22. So it appears that the IX Center Corporation's lease would just transfer to the new operator, but that's kind of unclear at this point. We, we you know, city, as you said, wouldn't answer our questions yesterday about how the announcement affects its arrangement with the former operator. But the city has said, you know earlier that they wanted to see the facility running in some capacity. And uh, you know, they had received two million dollars in rent in addition to income tax from the hundred and eighty employees who work there. So, I got to believe that this is a, a, you know, a good idea of, you know, this is but, this is a win for the city, but I, you know, they're not but, talking
0: about it. Yeah. I can't imagine that this company would buy the business without having talked to the city. We did call the city right. when we heard about this a couple of days ago and they said, we don't know anything about it, right. but, but it's not clear. Is that true that the city didn't know anything about it? Or were the people we talking, we were talking to just not in the loop. I mean, you never know what the city but I, I mean, it just it, I, I i did not expect to see an event business back there ever again. They were talking about using it as a warehouse for shipping and all sorts of things. So until we hear from the city, it's still a bit of a mystery. But you got to think the people spending that kind of money would have would have locked everything down.
1: Mm hmm.
2: Mm hmm. All right.
0: Well, another story we'll have to follow up on. (laughs) This
2: this is Laura Johnston. I just wonder about the contracts that some of these groups might have signed with the Huntington Convention Center thinking it was the only game in town. Like the boat show, which is supposed to be downtown in January, if they're going to be rethinking um, and if we're going to be kind of moving out of that center.
0: Well, and again, as Layla said, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Things are getting worse. So what will happen with any of this? Good stuff to check out this week on the CLE. What's the latest on the Ohio coronavirus numbers? Has the increase we've been seeing slowed? And how about hospitalizations? Laura Johnson, we haven't checked in on this. Uh, I don't think the news is good.
2: It is not good. It's it's really depressing, actually. We hit 7,102 new cases on Wednesday, although about 1,000 of those were, were from a backlog from an, a, a testing lab that didn't get their stuff in on time. And those tests were from August 15th to Saturday. According to the Ohio Department of Health, that problem has been corrected. And we'll get regular numbers from now on. But still, the last time we saw anything that big was January 21st. That's the last time we were over 6,000 cases. And think about it. Like, that was before everybody was getting vaccinated. That was the middle of winter. Kids were just getting back to school. And, I mean, that was a bad time.
0: Yeah, I, I just, I wonder if if we continue to see the schools falling like dominoes or if the, the ones that are still open are being more careful. Um, I think next week will bring more news. Yeah, you know, we're
2: at um, 9.1% of capacity uh, for coronavirus patients in the hospitals. And total capacity for all the hospitals is about 77%. So there's a little wiggle room, but nobody wants to see the hospitals get overrun. Positivity rate right now is 11%.
0: Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Time for a quick one. Is there actually a signature Ohio pizza or is is that fiction? Chicago and Detroit have them, Laura Johnston. Do we have one?
2: Okay. You're going to have to fill me in on what a Detroit pizza is because I don't know that, but... <laughs> <laughs> The Ohio pie is this cool idea of owner Nick Robson, who's opening his second Ohio pie restaurant. He wants to have this medium thickness dough with cheese next with toppings and a swirl of sweet sauce on top with a drizzle of garlic oil. I've never tried it. It's opening in my town. And now I really want to.
0: I, the, the Detroit pizza, it, if you've never been to a buddy's pizza in the Detroit region, you're missing something. I'm there totally are. missing they're, that. They're, they're square pizzas. They they have a wonderful crust. And, you know, I'm celiac, so I have to eat gluten-free, and they have the best gluten-free pizza I've ever had. I, I eat it as often as I can. <laughs> can so, I just
2: say, the, 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 this story from Annie Nikoloff said there's a fried pickle pizza, which I am like, okay, I want that, like, right
1: now. I'm sorry. That sounds amazing. really. <laughs> you know, from okay. what I... This is Leila Tassi. From what I can tell, Ohio pizza is tasteless dough undercooked in the middle (laughs) with a very poor topping to cheese ratio. So I'm eager to see if uh, this you
0: are way (laughs) too young to be this cynical. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Okay, so we'll not have a podcast on Monday because it's a holiday. On Tuesday, we will have a new member of the podcast. Check it out. not going to say who it is. And on Wednesday, we're going to have an extra person on, a special guest in Ted Dieden, to talk about an editorial that we'll be publishing Sunday that we think is worth a good discussion. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast.